Hello, and welcome to America and Democracy from the MIT Press Podcast. My name is Sam Kelly, and in this series of interviews, I'll be asking authors to reflect on some of the reasons why American politics is the way it is as we approach the election on November 3rd. I'll be speaking to authors about a variety of subjects, from corruption and science denial to McCarthyism and Martin Luther King, all with the hopes of understanding how best to advocate for and expand democracy in America. For the first episode, I'll be speaking to Robert Rotberg, President Emeritus of the World Peace Foundation, founding director of Harvard Kennedy School's program on intrastate conflict, and fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Robert is the author of Anti-Corruption, which was published in July as part of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge series. And in his book, Robert lays out a guide for understanding and combating corruption. I'll be asking him about how corrupt the American political system is and whether or not it's getting worse, as well as asking him about some of the methods that have been successfully deployed to reduce corruption around the world. This interview is going to be part of a series of discussions I'm going to have with MIT Press authors about some of the issues that are going to shape the American election. But the aim is to zoom out a little bit uh, and talk about some of the broader trends in American politics, uh, as opposed to focusing completely on the spectacle of the election. Although what we're about to discuss, I have a feeling it might be quite difficult to do that because of how... uh, extreme some of the behavior is in the lead up to this election but just to start off could you talk a little bit about your work talk a little bit about your book anti-corruption um and just introduce people to your expertise and your areas of interest to get started right uh sam i've been um working on issues of governance and state failure and power in relation to the developing world and and more recently the the developed world, this led almost naturally to a focus on corruption because what I discovered and many others discovered as well is that before 1995, the whole issue of corruption was buried by the World Bank, IMF, and so on. And yet it turns out that corruption is possibly the most important impediment to economic development and human growth in large parts of the world. Let's say two thirds of the world suffers from corruption, which, and what corruption does, of course, is fairly obvious when one thinks about it, it distorts priorities. But what it also does is it siphons money away from issues that could reduce poverty. It takes money away from education, from hospitals in the developing world and in the developed world as well. So those are key issues. And the way to make the world better is to reduce corruption substantially. And so my book, Anti-Corruption, which MIT Press has just published, emphasizes all those points, talks about what corruption is and what it isn't, distinguishes between petty and grand corruption. But in addition, it indicates that 12 to 15 countries in the world successfully 100 and 150 years ago 
eliminated corruption to all, all, all extent impossible. And so I have a chapter on the Nordics, on the Scandinavians, on New Zealand and Canada, all of which moved in the 19th century and then in the 20th century, beginning with Denmark in the 18th century, to move from accepting corruption and selling and buying a preference, uh, which turns out to be corruption, and selling offices. Britain did this. Indeed, there are a couple famous British novels, one called Middlemarch, which discuss how British offices were sold, especially in the Midlands. And the rotten borough business in Britain was all about um, corruption at the parliamentary level and at the, the running local politics level. Fast forward to the 20th century, one country, one small, two, two small countries actually, Hong Kong and Singapore. Singapore particularly in 1959 and decisively in 1965 decided under Lee Kuan Yew that corruption was a bad thing and they were coming off 50 years of British permitted wholesale corruption. Um, Chinese uh, mafia-type gangs, uh, British connivance with them, and then Singapore, under Lee Kuan Yew, eliminated uh, corruption. uh, And the book talks about how Lee Kuan Yew and later a British governor in Hong Kong eliminated corruption almost overnight. And so let's take an example of... uh, what you can do with eliminating corruption. Singapore's GDP per capita was $450 per head in 1965 and is now 70 to 80,000 per head with very good educational opportunities, good clinics, et cetera. A modern country, all because of leadership determining that corruption was uh, a way of sapping the economy and depriving people of their just rights and and so on. Before we go on, for people that are listening, could you clarify the kind of metrics by which you're measuring corruption and the the behavior? I mean, you've already started to do it a little bit, but the sort of specific behaviors that you're talking about when you're talking about corruption, because one thing I want to ask you about later is the way you talk about corruption versus democracy and but before we go on to that, could you just clarify exactly what you're talking about when you talk about corruption? What kinds of behaviors, what kinds of practices? Corruption is the stealing from the people by usually people in elected office, sometimes appointed office, and it's taking advantage of one's privilege as a president to take money from foreign corporations or through one's hotels or through one's family and so on. It's taking advantage of a public position for private gain. In the case of football, FIFA, it's it was a question of abusing public trust for private gain. And that was investigated, of course. So in terms of metrics, we can look at court cases, we can look at prosecutions, we can look at, at the very uh, lowest level in a, let's say, a small town in the UK or in the US, 
the public position of a permitting authority for granting ability to build a, a block of flats. It becomes lucrative for the permitting authority, obviously. That's corruption. And in a much larger sense, if, as in most of Africa and large parts of Asia, even in the UK and Canada at various times, the whole procurement business, the government sets out a, to uh, give a contract for railways or roads or something, some construction. And um, uh, the construction, which should cost a billion pounds, costs two billion pounds, and the extra billion goes to the permitting authority, uh, which happens to be your uncle or my uncle, and they uh, benefit when they shouldn't. And the most egregious case, really brilliant case, is Petrobras Lava Jato case in Brazil that I write about in the book, where uh, in, in 2014, the prosecuting authority stumbled on the fact that an enormous 30 billion operation off the coast of Brazil was padding its contracts by another 15 billion, and that 15 billion was going to the president of Brazil and to members of the Brazilian parliament. So straightforward, easy stuff. That's grand corruption, petty corruption, which is in a sense less dangerous, but much more annoying to all of us, is the man, the constable, in this case, Constable Moyo, who um, held me up at the airport in Harare, Zimbabwe, a few years ago and said, your uh, running lights on your car are not working. They were. He said they weren't. I said, well, look, they are. He said, no, I can't see them. And um, it'll cost you $20 to get past me. So he got the $20, and there we were, a straight corruption. Um, and his corruption was a factor of having to contribute a certain amount every day to the inspector of the police, his boss, and the inspector of police had to kick it up to the police commissioner. So as President Kagame and many others of Rwanda has said, corruption starts at the top. A fish rots from the head. And that's what corruption is all about. And that's why anti-corruption is relatively easy to conceptualize and relatively difficult to put into practice. So... That perfectly leads on to the next thing I was going to ask you, which is what are some of the policy demands or techniques for reducing or eradicating corruption? Yeah, there's a whole um, panoply of uh, uh, things, but what's important to, to, to set out the general principles, transparency and accountability. So if one has a free press, and free media that can investigate suspected crime, suspected corruption, as in Brazil, as in South Africa, as in the United States, in the UK, France, Germany, and so on, this is relatively easy to cope with after the fact because you can go in and you can, as in the case of FIFA, you can ask questions and and, and the Panama Papers, another very good example of finding material which indicates who's been on the take. Now, 
Uh, let me say parenthetically that um, greed is hardwired into the human character. So the role of the press and the role of the media is to investigate. Civil society obviously can investigate as well and does so. The other and more sophisticated way of doing this, which we're, which we're doing in Brazil, we're doing to some extent in Europe and the US is to use algorithms to look for anomalies in contracting. This is a little complicated, but let me simplify and explain. You can get all the contracts for a Brazilian state, plug them into the computer, and then ask the computer if there are any firms that are getting contracts from the state government who have no employees. Aha, that's one thing you might look, uh, telegraph as, as, a, as something that, to be investigated. Or the employees might, or the, the firms might um, have friends in government and relatives in government. So you then flag those, then investigate them. And then you one discovers as a student of mine has done in uh, Brazil, find easily find contracts that are that are that are fraudulent now i've mentioned obviously you need a, an independent judiciary because the prosecutors have to bring cases and if the judges are part of the government or really dependent on the government then they can't operate freely and that that impedes the prosecution and that's why one of the things in my book which I talk about is an independent new international anti-corruption court, which, which if it is created, can um, substitute for domestic situations in which the courts are compromised by their closeness to the president. I also, it's important to mention at this point that uh, there's a status of individual which we call kleptocrat. Kleptocrat are people in high office who steal from their own people. And those people often go unprosecuted in Russia, in Hungary, in um, Africa and Asia, South America, um, and are protected by the political apparatuses and by the judiciary. Um, we need an international mechanism to bring those to book. I do want to ask you actually about Lava Jato in Brazil specifically, but I just want to frame it within another question. So in your book, something that kind of struck me was the phrase that you use, more democracy is not necessarily the answer. And what I found interesting was the way in which you talk about more democratic societies are not necessarily less corrupt. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit and also expand on that in the Brazilian context, because I'm by no means an expert on Brazilian politics, but as I understand it, the Lava Jato scandal event was politically motivated and has led to someone like Jair Bolsonaro coming into power, who by many metrics is more corrupt, less democratic, you know, perhaps proto-fascist in lots of ways. So could you reflect on that set of questions for me a little bit? Jair Bolsonaro got himself elected because he was going to 
fix the end of corruption. In fact, his family is wildly corrupt. He's been himself implicated in corrupt dealings. Two of his sons are, one is on trial now for corruption. I think the other one is also headed in the same direction. And um, so that's, that, was, that isn't an answer to the Brazilian issue. But I think I'd like to correct you that the Lava Jato case was anything but political. It was when it, when it first started, Judge Sergio Moro was sitting in the 13th criminal court in the state called Paraná, and he was landed with a strange case discovered in a car wash, in a, in a petrol station car wash, hence Lava Jato. And this was a case which they thought was just money laundering. It turned out it was the, the tip of the iceberg, and the iceberg uh, was this enormous over-invoicing of Petrobras contracts. So prosecutors and Judge Morrow uh, pursued this by getting 15 or 20 people, including the head of Odebrecht, which is one of the largest contracting companies in the world and the largest in South America, to fess up to the fact that they had padded their invoices in order to pay off the politicians who were giving them the contracts. Straightforward stuff, very easy to understand, and similar to everything that's been going on in Brazil and throughout Latin America for decades, probably a half a century or more, uh, maybe a century, who, who knows. But what uh, Sergio Moro was intent on doing single-handedly at first was to end political impunity because before he was landed with these cases as a judge, politicians had always got off scot-free. Some of them may have gone to court for corruption, but the courts always let them off with a slap on the wrist. Moro was not willing to do that and managed to get these courses through these, these cases through to punishment, including the most popular president Brazil has ever had. Uh, Lula da Silva, who was sentenced by Judge Moro first to nine years, then 12 years on appeal, as it turns out. So, and he's now barred from standing in future elections. But he is still the most popular president uh, Brazil has ever had because he was very good for the poor. And the left in Brazil is still angry at Judge Moro for doing his duty as a judge. So, yeah. so I suppose what I want to ask you about is the notion that more democratic states are not necessarily less corrupt and what the dynamic is between eradicating corruption and furthering or impinging on individual civil liberties. Uh, what is that dynamic? How do, you, how do states navigate it? Uh, and what do you think the best through line is? Well, on the one hand, anti-corruption and democracy go hand in hand. The Nordic example, the New Zealand example, Australian example, Iceland, uh, Canada, uh, these are places that are very democratic, always high up on the democracy list. They're also at the very top, all of them, and Luxembourg's another, at the top of the anti-corruption list. This is Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index is always led 
by Denmark, Norway, Sweden, or Finland. Finland, most recently. Uh, these are societies which are the most equal on the planet in terms of the Gini co coefficient. They're also the most purely democratic, but this doesn't mean that democracy is necessarily the answer to corruption because one takes a look at, in some ways, the most democratic country in the world is Israel because of its extreme proportional representation system, but it's also a corrupt country with lots of preference. So democracy is not the answer, but it goes hand in hand. Uh, Singapore, which is also a very non-corrupt country now, thanks to Lee Kuan Yew, is not a completely democratic country. So you can get non-corruption and quasi-democracy or guided democracy or illiberal democracy, and they work together. And another country which I, I want to cite as really an exemplar for anti-corruption is also a highly controlled, right, I mean, run by an authoritarian, which is Rwanda. Paul Kagame has done an exemplary job in ending corruption in his own family and in his own government. There isn't any corruption to speak of in Rwanda, despite the fact that it's a wildly authoritarian country and Kagame could do what he wanted and steal as much as he he could. He doesn't do so, but he runs a tightly controlled country. It's not a democracy. Likewise, South Africa is a democracy, but it has a great deal of corruption, which President Cyril Ramaphosa is attempting to rein in. So democracy is not the answer, but good governance, which is what I say in the book, and spend a lot of time on governance, something about which I've published other books, Good governance is the answer because good governance is a way of delivering. Good governance is the performance of government. And when you deliver good outcomes in terms of governance, you, by definition, have very little corruption. So I do want to take the conversation towards specific questions around America as this series of interviews is going to go out ahead of the election, and I'm going to be asking questions about America specifically. To begin with, could I just ask you how you see the landscape of corruption in America historically? Not, not necessarily at the moment, but historically, how, how corrupt a country do you think America is? Where do you see corruption in the American political system, economy, etc.? Yeah, why, the U.S., this lovely country in which I was born and lived, was wildly corrupt in the 19th century. The big cities were, were famously corrupt. You couldn't get anywhere or do anything or get a job really without paying someone who had authority. So the most important job, the most lucrative job, I should say, in the government in the 19th century was in charge of customs in a city like New York. It must have been the same in Liverpool in the 19th century. You had invoices of, you know, things coming, products going in and out, and you paid to get them at a lower rate. That's still going on in various places. So the most important reforms were undertaken by President Arthur, who was a, in the 18, 
70s uh, was an accidental president. He had been customs inspector in New York City, chief of customs, a political appointment. But as president, he decided to crack down because he knew what corruption was doing to destroy the U.S. So he created the first uh, civil service regulations, making it difficult to keep your civil your your civil service employment and 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 be corrupt. Fast forward really to the early 20th century, when the press, particularly cartoonists working for the New York press, uh, really brought an end to the boss tweeds ring in New York City, which was controlling virtually everything that moved in New York. And the police commissioner in the city at that point was a young man called Theodore Roosevelt. He later, by accident again, became president of the United States. And he almost single-handedly, between 1900 and 1902 and 1912, uh, reformed the way in which contracts and procurement was done by the federal government. He also made it impossible for corporations to sponsor political parties. And it was the famous uh, United Citizens case that the Supreme Court only relatively recently uh, promulgated, which overturned all the restrictions that President Roosevelt had brought in on corporations and money in the U.S. So, So from about, I would say, the 1920s, the U.S. became less and less corrupt at all levels. Uh, the press became much more important. The courts were free. And although there were many small corruption cases, the, the federal level and, and most of the state levels were free of more than petty corruption until this president, who we um, hope will be voted out of office soon, this president has monetized the presidency. And the New York Times just this past week, and uh, with with another story coming out tomorrow, it really has indicated how he has uh, corrupted the presidency in a way that takes us back to the middle of the 19th century, takes us back to President Grant and um, President Jackson, and has uh, used it to benefit his family, used it to uh, benefit his own uh, fortunes, and uh, we'll see how this plays out in the U.S. courts eventually, and in the U.S. electorate fairly soon. Just following on from that, One of the qualities you talk about a non-corrupt state is a free press. And I was wondering if you could reflect on how free you think the press is in the US. Because on one level, you know, there's a lot of really great journalists in the US doing really incredible work, but there's also a huge monopoly on the press. And I was wondering, one, how how corrupt do you see the press in the US? Um, And also, what are some of the measures by which a freer press can be encouraged? Well, a free press, uh, a freer press is encouraged by citizens wanting it, of course, and where you have a civil society, as in the UK or the US, which is loud and uh, untrammeled by any controls. Likewise, in Scandinavia, there's a great opportunity for the press and media. So we shouldn't just talk about the press, but media to follow its investigative noses. So the U.S. had a vibrant free press 
until, let's say, 2010 or 25, 2005, there's still a vigorous free press. But of course, we have to go beyond the print media nowadays and go to online sources like Politico, like Medium even, um, like uh, Substack, a whole series of platforms which are trying to fulfill the investigative um, void that has occurred because lots of daily newspapers have gone out of business. There are um, 300 counties in the United States, counties in the United States with no newspaper. So the economics of running print media has become very difficult. So therefore, The media is certainly free if you include everything, social media and so on. And uh, just as the New York Times has done, the Miami Herald, the Boston Globe, uh, San Francisco Chronicle, the Milwaukee Journal and so on, are still flourishing, but with diminished resources. So one one has to go to uh, follow the trail of corruption to um, social media. One of the last things I want to ask you about is, so I agree with you, I think it'd be great if Americans voted Donald Trump out. But equally, both the presidential candidates that people have to choose from take huge sums of money from wealthy elites, corporate interests, fossil fuel, healthcare providers, etc., etc. So beyond voting, what are some of the measures that people can take or some of the ways in which people can organize to push for a less corrupt democratic system in America? Yeah, no, that, that's a very good question. And the answer is, is relatively simple. Um, if there is a, a democratically aligned House of Representatives and Senate after the next election, you will see them both quickly vote to make corporate donations illegal above a certain threshold. So that means revoking the United Citizens case, which has, which was, I think, 2013, which um, has uh, caused the tsunami of corporate donations to influence elections. It, you can also, in the same legislation, I would predict, if there's the right voting in Congress, it will also limit Uh, contributions to influence politics from all the sources you mentioned, fossil fuels, etc. But that depends on a democratically aligned rather than a Republican aligned Congress, because the Republicans, uh, this is objective, not subjective. Republicans have always benefited the wealthiest class in the U.S., certainly going back to President Reagan and and really going back to President Hoover. So the the difference, one can say, between the two parties even now, as exemplified by Trump, is relative attention given to privilege versus people who are less, less privileged. And do you think people voting and selecting Democratic representatives should demand that those representatives sort of make a commitment to not taking money from corporations and private interest groups? 
yes, but um, it's most important to get elected first. So if, if one wants a Congress that's focused on the real needs of real Americans and redressing some of the backward movements that's gone on in the last four years, uh, one wants to get them elected first and then, then to constrain future politics because I'm happy to see Biden take contributions from anything as long as he can get elected, because only then can we make change. Thank you for speaking to me today, Robert. I think I think we'll leave it there. Okay, pleasure. Thank you so much for, for sharing your time with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the first episode of America and Democracy from the MIT Press Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share this episode. I'd like to thank Samantha Doyle, who edits and mixes the podcast, and Kristen Galeno, who provided the soundtrack. In next week's episode, I'll be speaking to Jonathan Berman about his book, Anti-Vaxxers. And finally, remember to join a union, support independent journalism, and vote on November 3rd.